just keep trying things and know that you will fuck up over and over again. And okay, so you did some performative allyship things and someone called you out. Amazing opportunity for learning and growth. Okay, you're going to fuck this up. Rule number one. And that's perfectly fine. Every fuck up is an opportunity to learn and grow. Just know that. And that anti-racism work, eradicating white supremacy, being an ally to the Black community is hard. It's hard. It's complex. It's nuanced. It's paradoxical, and it's worth doing. Zoe Bender is a dear, dear friend of mine. She's also a high school teacher and has been involved in social and racial justice work for the last 15 years. And we're going to talk about what does it mean to be an ally to the Black community? We're going to talk about this collective awakening that is happening of white liberal people. Some of the skills necessary for being on the lifelong journey of white allyship, right? White people being allies to black people. Uh, we will talk about the difference, the, the difference between allyship and accomplice ship a little bit. We're going to touch on white socialism, white fragility, um, how to avoid being a performative ally, and what does it mean to keep excavating your own relationship to racism and white supremacy. There are a lot of resources in this conversation. They are all included in the show notes. Look, it's hard to talk about racism and to realize that you've been living in a white supremacy system. And if you are white, you have been benefiting from that system. And the only way I know how to become better at something is to do it often. And this is something that is worth doing fighting for the freedom of black people. Talking about it isn't easy. Doing this work isn't easy. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. So let's start. My name is Sean Galanos, and this is The Left Drive. Um, can I swear on your show? Yeah, you can. Absolutely. Sick. Yeah, sick. <laughs> <laughs> and and then I'm going to start by asking you to introduce yourself, and you can do that in whatever way makes sense. Like, mm. whatever. Okay. You got that? All right. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. Zoe Bender, could you please introduce yourself? I am Zoe Bender, and I'm a high school teacher 
I teach at a private school in San Francisco, um, and I teach mostly American history, but I also teach in the arts department as well. My background is in performance art with a focus on the intersection of performance art and social justice. And what else should I say about myself? I'm white. And we're going to talk more about that. Nice. And we met at a rave. That's right. <laughs> it was a shitty rave. So bad. Do you remember that? I do. Yeah, because you uh, were dressed as a mummy and were mm-hmm. twerking upside mm-hmm. down. And you asked mm-hmm. me to take a, vid- a video of it. I wonder where that video is. I think I, I probably still have it in one of my... On one of my hard drives. I should put that on my LinkedIn. (laughs) It was a fantastic video. And anyway, I'm glad that we met and we've been friends for a while now. And I reached out to you to talk to me and to my listeners about what it means, like what is allyship? What does it mean to be an ally to the Black community and to Black people? And this is like not an easy conversation for me to have. Like I feel a little nervous having it with you, but I'm also like, I trust you and I also trust the process. And I also feel like this is what it, this is kind of like what we have to do. Like we have to have uncomfortable conversations. Correct. Where do we start with this? Because it feels kind of big. I think the first place to start is education. And that can happen through reading or viewing or conversation. You know, everybody has a different, everybody learns in a different way. And so I think having a little bit of self-awareness around what kind of a learner you are um, is going to help guide what resources are going to be the best place to start for you as an individual. I personally am kind of a verbal processor. I like to talk things through with people and I find that I, I learn best in community and in relationships. So, so yeah, I think like talking to folks who have some experience or information is a really great place. And I think that's part of the, part of the reason that you reached out to me. There's no shortage of information. And I think that's pretty cool that people are starting to recognize that the resources are out there. Because I think for a long time, folks have felt like, well, I don't know what to do and there's nothing I can do to educate myself. So that's the end of the conversation. I mean, I think for a long time, people really didn't give a shit. Sure. Because it didn't affect them. Right. Um, Right. So to, to your point, education, number one figure out what kind of learner you are. That might be podcasts. That might be mm-hmm. books. That mm-hmm. might be audiobooks. For you, it might be talking to people or like, mm-hmm. you know, live events or community type events. Maybe they're like Zoom calls on allyship. Um, could be movies if you're like a visual learner, right? There's a ton of movies that you can start. Right? Yeah. Like, like I just watched 13th on the 13th Amendment. So good. Right. Incredible. Amazing. Amazing. Learned so many things about the like prison industrial complex. Yeah. Yeah. About the crime bill. About, you know, George, uh, George, George Clinton. <laughs> George, <laughs> Bill Clinton. <laughs> the lesser Clinton. 
<laughs> Bill Clinton's role in all of this, right? With um, I learned about the crime bill, uh, three strikes law, like so many things that I had no idea, had yeah. no idea about, right? Yeah. And so then I'm, I go, oh shit, like that's that's a lot of stuff that I can be researching and, and like reading up more about because the, I mean the movie is only like two hours long, right? So they can be starting points for more uh, exploration on mm-hmm. on like certain topics right so to your point figure out how you learn and then go and seek out those resources and we will link some resources in the show notes for this episode Um, and you said you know there wasn't as much as there is now and that's probably true and i said some people just didn't give a shit and people were saying to amplify melanated voices and to mute yourself I think a lot of people realize like, oh shit, like this is, this is a big deal. And I kind of have to give a shit now more than I ever have. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think there's just this sort of power of momentum. And like, I was reading an interview that um, Robin D'Angelo had on, on CNN. Um, Robin D'Angelo's a really brilliant white woman author who writes about white socialization and um, kind of developing a white anti-racist practice. Um, And she was presencing the notion of the tipping point, you know, like Malcolm Gladwell wrote that book about how if you, if 30% of a group start doing something, then it sort of, there's enough like momentum that the rest it like becomes the norm and it feels like conversations about racial justice and white supremacy are are approaching this tipping point where it just like is beginning to permeate every aspect of society um which is very exciting and there's um like a kind of a yeah a collective awakening happening amongst liberal white folks in particular i you know we should i should say that like people of color have been very awakened to the realities of racism and white supremacy forever. But with liberal white folks, it's starting to be an undeniably important conversation. And Robin D'Angelo is also the author of, of white fragility and, and coined that term, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I have a quote here that from Robin D'Angelo that says, it became clear over time that white people have extremely low thresholds for enduring any discomfort associated with challenges to our racial worldviews. Yep. And I feel that in myself. Like, oh yeah. Supremely uncomfortable talking about this. And so, I mean, that's partially why I decided to reach out and to do some episodes on this so that I could get more comfortable talking about it because it's not going to go away, especially since, you know, like you said, we do have a tipping point. Um, and we kind of got to get over the fact that this is going to be uncomfortable, right? Like the only way I know to get more comfortable with anything is to do it more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's do it more. Like that's, you know, we said education is one way that we can start. Another way is to have these conversations with other white people. Yeah. Okay. So I'm a high school teacher. So a lot of my um, job is about breaking these big, big ideas into 
key content and key skill building. And so I was thinking about like, what are the skills that are necessary for being on the lifelong journey of white allyship? And one of them, the first one, I think, is is learning to sit with uncomfortable feelings, mm. um, which is also a great life skill. And I think that there's a number of different ways into building that skill. I think that um, mindfulness and various meditative practices can help people sort of create some spaciousness between the input of a sensory experience and the output of a reaction. Mm. And that is so essential to building our capacity for for uncomfortable conversations and uncomfortable experiences in general. I also think there's different therapeutic and somatic modalities that can help us build that capacity to just be uncomfortable without lashing out or getting defensive or going numb or disassociating. Those are all pretty common reactions for white people to have when they're, how did Robin D'Angelo say it? When their, their racial worldview is challenged. Um, So, so I think along with education, a, a very important skill to build is being uncomfortable and finding the way again, you know, everybody learns and grows in different ways, finding the practice that helps you as an individual build that capacity. Yes. Sitting with discomfort. Mm -hmm. That feels like a great skill to have in life, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in relationships, in, in work, in, in everything. Yeah. Um, I God, I have so many questions. Um, I'm going to jump back and forth between questions that people have asked me cool. when they're connected to what we're talking about. And I guess somebody wanted to know, how do we bring this awareness and kindness into the lowest level of school systems? Because you kind of talked about like, I know you're building a curriculum for your students around anti-racism. Mm-hmm. And so this person wants to know, how do you bring this into the lowest levels of the school system? I'm guessing low levels, they mean like age-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, communication and relationship not taught in school, nor is racism. So how do we implement basically like life mm-hmm. um, into our learning? Yeah. I mean, I think that really is a bigger question about what is the role of education in our society. Um, If you look at the history of compulsory education in the industrialized United States, education, the school system has largely been about sort of training the population at large to be a kind of compliant and efficient workforce and not at all about training people to be emotionally intelligent or self-aware or subversive and challenging the power dynamics in society at all. So I think that like there's a there's a lot of big questions about how how should we do school to create the world that we want to see. And so I think, you know, acknowledging that there are just some like really big challenges in the in the school system that we've inherited 
I do think that there are people doing really amazing work around socio-emotional learning. There's a this uh, acronym in in the education field of SEL, socio-emotional learning, which is extremely, it's trending hard right now. People are really, really invested in building SEL into all levels, all grade levels. Um, so I think that's really hopeful. And um, there's also movements in in the education field to center equity-based approaches and um, what's called culturally responsive teaching. Um, so those, I'm just kind of throwing out some buzzwords of like, these are what this is. These are some things people are thinking about who are um, taking on these challenges in the school system. I also realize as I'm asking these questions that you know this conversation is really about how to be an ally to the mm-hmm. black community, and when you talk about socio emotional learning and equity based approaches, what I think of is the fact that there are some people that have been doing this work for a very long time. Yeah, and what we can do, one of the things that, that we can do as allies and what I've been sort of reading about is is to back those causes, mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. those people that have been doing this work for a long, long time. Yeah, that's so important. And I think that, okay, so I want to introduce this idea of white socialization, because I think it'll be something that I want to refer to a lot in this conversation. Um, and so white socialization is really just like the kind of messages and ideas that we've gotten about ourselves and other white people and and really about the world that are sort of specific to this privileged racial position. Um, And one of the aspects of white socialization um, is this internalized sense of superiority. And I should, again, say that a lot of these ideas I'm pulling from Robin D'Angelo. So with this internalized sense of superiority, we often think, I'll, I'll speak in the eye, I often think as a white person who's been socialized in this way, that I have the best ideas and I know the right answer and that um, I should be the one taking the lead on problem solving Mm. things. And so, and this is something that this is like a common pitfall for, for white folks who really want to be working for racial justice. There's a way that white folks can, we can like, dominate the conversation or take over a space because we think we've got all the answers. And so um, building some self-awareness around that pattern and then learning to um, kind of reel it in and take more of a following role and supporting the leadership of people of color and other marginalized groups is a really important practice and is super challenging sometimes when we're like eager, we're so eager and we have good intentions and we just want to fix it. Or show people that we're doing the right thing. Of course. That we have big, smart ideas about how we can help. Hell yeah. Yeah. So part of the educational process for people that are just sort of starting out on this journey of white allyship is, is recognizing that there are people in the world who have already built movements, organizations, solution-based approaches that are brilliant 
and we don't have to reinvent the wheel and like come up with some new thing. We can instead share the power so that those ideas that already exist can be enacted and get some traction. Yeah. There was um, a list on Twitter from someone named Tatiana T. Mac at Tatiana T. Mac on Twitter and uh, are basically talking about this phenomenon that there's a lot of white people right now wanting to help and to dive in and to do all the work and to read all the books and to watch all the movies and to have all the conversations. And then like, you know, a week later, they're fucking exhausted and they're like, they're burning out by wanting to do so much. Mm. One of the ideas and, and um, they have like six different sort of messages on, okay, this is what you're doing now. Here's a way to make it systemically effective and positive. And one of them, it was, okay, big donations are great. And systemically, right? So like, how do you integrate this into your life? How much can you set aside for recurring donations moving forward? Yep. Right. So as we talk about backing people and movements and organizations that are doing this work, it's great that everyone wants to donate right away. And I did that with Rachel Cargill's The Loveland Foundation, which is um, devoted to, amongst other things, give Black women and girls access to therapy. So I gave a donation, but then I said, okay, let's make this a recurring donation so that I can consistently and like throughout, you know, hopefully in my lifetime, be able to donate to these organizations that are doing good because they need sustained support, not just one-time support. Totally. Yeah. I think that's really important. And I, and there's one of the kind of foundational concepts, I think, of allyship or accompliship um, is that it's a lifelong process. It's not like a destination. You don't sort of check the box and then you're like, cool, I did it. Now I'm, now I'm all good and don't have to think about that anymore. And part of, I think, what can be hard about that it's not a process of instant gratification. Mm. Another part of our white socialization is jumping to quick fixes and short-term short-term gratification rather than thinking about the the struggle for social justice and equity and equality as a process that spans generations and that we can commit to being in this struggle for our entire life without needing to see the immediate fruits of our labor or without needing to be congratulated for our participation or without needing to see, um, you know, some outcome that we've attached, that we've become attached to, but that really just like the practice Mm. is the work. I'm glad you mentioned that. It, the thing that comes to mind is that like black people aren't going to like pat us on the back mm-hmm. and, and say, good job. Thank mm-hmm. you for your donation. Thank you for finally speaking to your white friends or your racist uncle or, you know, we're not going to get a, a lot of instant gratification from this and that's okay. Mm-hmm. 
right? Like if we're committed to doing the work, we're committed to doing the work because we want to see racial equity, not because we want to be patted on the back. And I mean, that's a great segue into performative allyship. I think this week, a lot of people kind of got schooled, including myself, on what it means to be an ally. Also, we can talk about um, allyship versus, did you call it accompliceship? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it mean to be an accomplice versus an ally? But first of all, let's talk about performative allyship. A lot of people were schooled on how to be an ally. And I think a lot of people came from this position of reactivity, right? And we were sort of talking about sitting with discomfort. I, I didn't do a really good job of sitting with discomfort. I really like tried to jump into action right away. And shared a lot of things and then you know people were like well don't you know don't don't share it that way that's performative don't do this this is performative and so a lot of the questions that i've gotten from you know my listeners or my audience is like how can we avoid the pitfalls of performative allyship and be an authentic ally whatever that means mm-hmm. i'm curious if you can speak to the performativity of being an ally sure yeah so this is interesting i because i think that the question, the, the, the sort of underlying concern in those questions is how do I do it right? Right. And I think that that actually is born of this perfectionist tendency and also the um, lack of capacity around being uncomfortable. And so what I would say is like, just keep trying things and know that you will fuck up over and over again. And okay, so you're gonna, so you did some performative allyship things and someone called you out. Amazing opportunity for learning and growth. And I, I resist the urge to sort of deliver like a template for how to not be performative. I don't, I don't actually think that there's, a, I don't think I can answer that question because so much of the question, it's a authenticity is not prescriptive, right? Right. Like the key, I guess, is to, is just to keep going and keep excavating your own relationship to racism and white supremacy. And I think like you'll get there if you keep going and that you're going to look bad and messy and make mistakes along the way. And that's part of it. And to maybe not delete those mistakes. I don't know, man. I look, I, I <laughs> am, I deleted social media for like five years because I just think it's so fucking toxic for me. For me, it's not a, it's not a useful way to engage with the world. And I'm back on Facebook now because of COVID. And I felt like I wanted to, up my digital communication game with people. But I, I don't think like if you say something and people are like, Hey, that's fucked up, please take it down. Like, go ahead and take it down. I don't think you should, you know, you have to like, continue exposing your mistakes for all to criticize if it's especially if it's like, so painful that it makes you want to shut down and run away from the conversation altogether. Sure. I guess what I'm saying is I don't think there's one right way to do it. There's not one um, answer to this. And that one of the key skills, this is also in my list of key skills, is learning to view and treat mistakes as opportunities for growth 
rather than motivation to shut down. Mm-hmm. I have made some really egregious, painful mistakes in my journey around white allyship and will continue to. And I have had people get really mad at me and, um, you know, kind of publicly call me out in a way that I found totally humiliating. And the, those moments have been the most valuable moments in my journey here because for whatever reason, I was able to, to find the opportunity for growth. Staying teachable is basically staying teachable while sitting with discomfort instead of shutting down. And I love how you, you know, when I said, don't delete your thing there, you sort of like kind of challenged me in, in this idea that like, it's very nuanced, right? Like if someone says, yo, that is so fucking offensive, take it down you might want to consider taking it down. But if it's somebody's like gently calling you in to a new way of looking at something, then not taking that thing, like not feeling immediately embarrassed and wanting to like pretend like that never happened can actually be a helping, it can be helpful for other people to witness that, right? To witness the fact that like you made a mistake, somebody called you in rather than calling you out, right? Called, called you into like, a different point of view or different perspective or like more softness. And then you can leave that up for someone to see you mess up. Sure. Especially if you kind of can, can have the visual evidence of you sort of integrating that and being like, okay, cool. Thank you for pointing that out to me. I'm going to sit with that. And this is what I learned. And, you know, I don't know, just sort of like acknowledging the growth that happened from that exchange, I think is that that kind of brings it full circle. I think, I think I just should say, this is maybe my own bias. But I really don't think social media is the best arena for this work. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's an it's a obviously like a really powerful starting point for a lot of people. But I would really encourage folks to look for other avenues, other forums, other other places to engage in this work because it's fucking vulnerable and tender and it's and it's so much about the the nuances of an internal experience that just really can't come to their full fruition in the sphere of social media, in my opinion. Also, there are some people that their whole job is to instigate and to confuse and to like get people angry to get them to react. I mean, I've been spending some time in the comments and my God, it is, it's very scary. Uh, So I agree with you. Social media is like, cool. It's a tool in the arsenal of things that you can do, right? So we can elevate black voices. You can learn, you can be like clued into new concepts new ideas like i before watching uh, a video i didn't know the difference between equality and equity right and so mm-hmm. i like f- i learned about that on social media but then i like went off of social media to like f- learn more about it mm-hmm. so it could be a great tool but it's certainly not where you're going to get all of your learnings yeah and like you said it's a very vulnerable thing and that's kind of what we're talking about here like like staying teachable and sitting with discomfort is vulnerable 
It's much easier to shut down or to distract or to get defensive than it is to sit and be like, ow, you know, like I, I see how I could have hurt you there. And Mm -hmm. that's hard for me to sit with. And I'm just going to sit with it instead of turning away from it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I love this idea of staying teachable and I also love this idea of like, I I say this often, I don't really believe in mistakes because I think they are opportunities for learning. Yeah. And the only mistake is like not learning from a negative experience that you keep kind of having over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, gosh, there's so many different places we can go into so many different s- spheres. Um, can we just really quickly talk about ally uh, allyship versus accomplice ship? I don't think I could actually do that justice. That is a distinction um, that I would encourage people to research yeah. independent of this conversation. Yeah. Um, I love your boundaries. <laughs> you know, knowing what I don't know or or being able to admit that I don't know things is also something that I've had to learn in this work. I'm a person who likes to sound smart and like I'm fucking the expert on things and I'm not. And there you go. So we're going to fuck this up, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like you said, this is a lifelong journey. We don't get to, uh, where we get a ribbon for being a great ally or a great accomplice. Like we don't get there. So that means that we're going to fuck this up. Mm-hmm. And the f- the reality is that uh, this kind of brings me to another question that somebody asked me is that not everybody is going to agree with what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So like what you can what you might think is you being a good ally to somebody might be you being a bad ally to somebody else and everything continuously changes. So one of the questions that I got was there seems to be some sensitivity around how we identify a person by their race. Um, some people are offended by being referred to as a person of color. Uh, so there's some conflict here. And this person says, I want to ensure that I'm respectful to everyone. And the reality is here is that I don't think you can actually, because now we're talking about perfection. Mm-hmm. How can I mm-hmm. make sure I do this perfectly so I don't mm-hmm. offend anyone? Mm-hmm. Well, the only way to do that is to shut your mouth. And then, well, silence is violence. So now you're offending everyone as well. So it's complicated. This is super, super complex. And we're going to fuck this up. And it, and because, just because it's complex doesn't mean that it's not worth doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, okay, so I have been so mired in the desire for perfection around my own allyship for a long, long time. And I'm certainly not free from that. But the questions that you're reading me really sound like people wanting to get it right. And, um, and of course, of course, we want to get it right. And of course, we want guidance. And maybe I'm, I'll, I'll try to think about if there is some more kind of specific guidance that I can offer in a minute. But I just I think the more fundamental concept here is that there's not a one size fits all right way to do it. And that there's so much diversity and nuance to individual experiences that, as you said, an action or practice that might land as really supportive for one person might land as really offensive or problematic for another person. 
And having and and being able to sit with that and hold the complexity of that and to and to hold the the sometimes the paradoxical nature of this work is i think extremely essential Mm. yeah that sort of brings up for me this idea of like you know (laughs) intention versus impact Mm -hmm. because a lot of people will say well i you know i meant well Mm-hmm. That wasn't my intention. It was taken, you know, it was taken at, differently than the way I intended it to be. And that's sort of different, right? I guess that's different than what we're talking about because that's more the people using that as a defense strategy, you know, a defense mechanism for why they acted a certain way. Um, but it's true. I mean, if if your intention is to help and the impact is that you will fuck it up sometimes, and rather than get de- defensive is to stay open and to figure out and understand that there are a variety of different ways of doing this work and this work will never end, then maybe you can have a little bit of softness around just how confusing this is. And like you said, just how like paradoxical it might seem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I Yeah. And I think like this idea of intent versus impact is, is worth underscoring. Um, I'm assuming that many of your listeners like are not violent bigots who intend to harm people of color, but because we grew up in a white supremacist system, we, we enact white supremacist behaviors Mm. without wanting to sometimes, Mm. or, or we do things that, recreate racial trauma there's this notion of accumulated impact that people of color essentially have to deal with like small and large racial traumas every day and then sometimes we sort of like accidentally do something that that reactivates that and part of acknowledging intent versus impact is even if we didn't mean to or even if we didn't know that this was going to reactivate some racial trauma. The fact is that it hurt this person. Mm. And that may not be our individual fault, you know, but we still need to take responsibility for the effect that our actions had. If we want to be able to work towards healing and justice. Yeah. The, one of the best ways I saw that illustrated was when you accidentally step on somebody's foot. Mm-hmm. Well, you didn't mean to, but it still hurt them, right? Mm-hmm. There was the impact was that you stepped on somebody's foot and they went ow. And then there was a whole bunch of like different ways in how like some white people have reacted to a black person saying ow, which is like, well, your foot shouldn't have been there in the first place. You know, if you'd been nicer about telling me that that hurt you, then maybe I would have cared more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, you, you should not be wearing a flip-flop. You should be wearing a hard steel-toed boot. Uh, there's all these ways in which <laughs> we've just like, you know, not really paid attention or given a shit about hurting somebody, even especially because we didn't mean to do it. Sure. And then I think just to take that analogy a little further, like imagine that that person's foot has been stepped on every day for their entire life and their foot is actually broken and bleeding. And then you step on it 
And like maybe your step in and of itself wouldn't have been that harmful, but the accumulated impact Mm. is that it's just like continuing to uh, uh, deepen that wound. Mm. Or it's the step that breaks the foot. Right. You know? Yeah. So speaking about impact and intention, um, Rachel Cargill wrote, uh, this is one of her posts, um, that says that says this, and I quote, look for ways that you are racist rather than ways to prove you're not. Mm-hmm. There are two key ideas, ideas here. First, you can't change behaviors you're not aware of. And if you're consistently trying to assure yourself you're not racist, you're going to miss the ways you are. Second, once you've accepted that you are, in fact, racist some of the time, it's a lot easier to drop the barrier of good intentions, let go of the defensiveness, and take responsibility for your actions. Beautiful. Right? I love that. I want to add to that, too, that the more I learn about history, American history, I mean, Canadian history, too, probably. <laughs> yes. i be inclusive here. Thank you. For um, my, like, three Canadian listeners. Right. But, I, you know, so I teach American history, and the more I learn about the history of this nation and even before the United States became the entity that we know it. Um, The more I understand how racial subjugation and white supremacy have informed every single thing that has happened in this country and continue to inform every aspect of life. The very fact that I exist in this system and have inherited this legacy means that I am participating in racism Mm. all the time. Right. And, and I think there's something really powerful in sort of kind of depersonalizing it. Like instead of, instead of thinking, you know, if I say I am, I'm racist, that doesn't mean that I individually have like a hatred towards people of color but it means that i am complicit in a racist system and i cannot i can't really i can't deny that i can take responsibility and work to undo that and to subvert that but the starting point is simply to acknowledge Mm -hmm. that yeah i'm curious how many of my listeners know that i i don't think i knew that until like two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to just quote Robin D'Angelo here because it's, it's relevant. Um, While individual whites may be against racism, they still benefit from the distribution of resources controlled by their group. Yeah. Yes, an individual person of color can sit at the tables of power, but the overwhelming majority of decision makers will be white. Mm-hmm. Yes, white people can have problems and face barriers, but sy- systematic racism won't be one of them. This distinction between individual prejudice and a system of unequal institutionalized racial power is fundamental. One cannot understand how racism functions in the U.S. today if one ignores group power relations. Damn. Boom. Yeah. I was thinking about this like how it's such a it's such a counterintuitive concept 
for those of us who were socialized in a very individualistic worldview where we think like, um, you know, I am my own autonomous entity and I am not affected by the um, structures of society. And I have, you know, like this, this very, yeah, sort of individualistic idea of oneself, the concept that we are, that we are enacting the power structures of a system, I think is really hard to wrap our heads around. So here's a, here's an analogy I thought of, and it may or may not be helpful to explain this idea, but we live in a capitalist system. I personally, me, Zoe, I'm like, I'm not a capitalist. I'm fucking all about socialism and like collective this and that, right? But if I look at the day-to-day reality of my life, everything I do is capitalist. I work at a job, I buy products, I have private property, right? So even if my personal values and ideals may be in conflict with the system, I still have to acknowledge my participation in the system and that I benefit from it Mm -hmm. before I can start to make meaningful choices that um, dismantle that system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is kind of huge, right? I guess this is a separate conversation is like, how do we move forward with this? Because you and I are not going to solve these issues on the Love Drive podcast. (laughs) But I think... Or are we? Oh, well, we, well, you know, I guess it's we're part of the part of the tipping point, actually. Nah. Yeah, um, yeah, we're doing our one seven billionth of a part. We're doing. We all, yeah, we all have to do our part. Um, mm-hmm. But recognizing that we benefit from the system is it's a big step. I mean, it's a it's a small step, but it's also a big step. It's huge, and. I mean, I personally find it devastating. Like, I am horrified at the ways that I benefit from white supremacy and genocide. I am torn apart by it. I am I am heartbroken and disgusted and have a lot of yucky feelings about it. Um, and I think that's part of why it's so tempting to ignore this reality. Mm-hmm. Is because it it hurts. It's and it's 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 like deeply embarrassing. Sure, yeah, it's embarrassing, and it's. um, I just a lot of my feelings around it are sadness. Mm. Yeah, easier to turn away from that. Of course. Mm -hmm. So I uh, was driving. Okay, so here's just uh, sideline story time. Des and I. Who you who you know, a, friend, a mutual friend of ours, person mm-hmm. of color, were um, hanging out, and my brother calls and he goes, "Yo, you need to come pick me up," uh, because he had he had accidentally put gas in his wife's diesel, and so, anyways, he <laughs> I'm just throwing my brother under the bus real quick. Yeah, um, idiot. So yeah, idiot. <laughs> You're not supposed to do that. And uh, so he had to stop driving his car, and he was in San Mateo, and we and Des and I were in San Francisco. And so I go, okay, fine, I'm going to come pick you up. And along the way, there was a police checkpoint, a DUI checkpoint mm-hmm. on El Camino. And so I like pull up to the white police officer and he asked me for my driver's license. And because Des and I left in a rush, I didn't bring my wallet. 
And I go, oh, sorry, I left my wallet at home. My brother is an idiot. Um, <laughs> he put gas in the diesel and the cop was like, <laughs> the cop was like, what an idiot. Right. Um, and I go, so I don't have my driver's license. I'm, I'm really sorry. And he goes, have you been drinking? And I go, no, I've been sober for 10 years. And he goes, okay, cool. You know, uh, good luck. Have a, have a good night. And I drive and I drive on. And Des looks at me and she goes, are you fucking kidding me? And I go, what? What's the problem? She goes, you just got like basically stopped by a policeman. You told him you didn't have a driver's license. He made some joke and then let you go. And I go, yeah, what <laughs> What do you mean? What's the problem? And, she, and Des goes, that would never, like, I would never have that experience. That would not be my experience. I'm sitting in the seat like I was scared that we were going to get stopped and that I was going to get harassed. And I didn't even think about that. Like, I didn't even really, like, register. Yeah. Um, and I sort of, I heard this said, you know, when white people get pulled over, for the most part, they're scared of getting a ticket. And when black people get pulled over, they're scared of dying. Mm-hmm. That really puts it into perspective. Mm-hmm. Just how unequal or uneditable. Is that a word? Uneditable? Equitable. Equitable. This is. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's I think it's really powerful to have that lived experience where you you get to have a conversation that you know demonstrates the discrepancy and you could feel it in real time that Des was terrified and you were like chumming it up with a cop and like just what a different reality that is. Yeah. Um but if you start to just do a little bit of research, you it, it's so there are so many examples of the discrepancy in the experience that white folks and people of color, specifically black folks, are having in this country and in this world. I mean, everything from infant and mother mortality rates to how COVID-19 is affecting people. Incarceration. Absolutely. Like there's conviction just, rates. It's arrest bananas. rates. Yeah. Yeah. Loan yeah. approval. Yep. Jobs. Even like I, I'm not gonna be able to cite where this came from, but there was a, a a study done that people were submitting resumes with names that sounded black oh, yeah. versus names that sounded white. And names that sounded black just didn't get as many callbacks. So you know, there's, there's, again, it's really powerful when you kind of see it happen to your friend, or, you know, you see it in real time, but you don't need to, you don't need to wait for that wake up call, you can just literally do a tiny bit of research to realize how um, profoundly, profoundly racist and um, inequitable the world is. And cliched but knowledge is power right when you know like inside when you start to feel how unjust this is then there's more of a motivation to do something about it Mm -hmm. right like if you don't really know it's hard to really give a shit and it's easy to, to like dismiss it as the same old same old you know this has been this has been going on since 
since the beginning of time. What am I, you know, how could I even possibly help? But once you start to actually know, it's easier to give a shit. And that's a much better motivator than like feeling guilty or somebody shaming you into action. Um, I think it's a beautiful motivator. And it can also help to have like really fucking interesting and challenging conversations with your racist family members. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I had recently. Uh, I spoke to a family member and gosh, I got to say, it is really hard to have these conversations with people and to not immediately start jumping down their throat at some of their, uh, what's the word? (sighs) Well, you know, they get their news from a different place than where I get my news. Mm -hmm. And we just have really different viewpoints. So I guess I'm kind of curious, like, how do we have these conversations with our loved ones? And how do we stay open so that we don't just shut down and like cut people out? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I want to um, introduce this framework that I think will eventually help me answer your question. Um, it's called the ladder of conscious competence. And this was constructed by Elena Aguilar, who is an amazing social justice educator. Um, and I got this, I got, exposed to this um, framework through Tamisha Williams, Nakia Young, and Eric Temple, who are all educators who work at a high school called Lick Wilmerding. Um, So the ladder of conscious competence is um, sort of a, a, a developmental framework. And it starts at the lowest level with unconscious incompetence, right? So, um, you don't know what you don't know. You're just sort of like oblivious to what's happening in terms of racism and white supremacy in the world. Then there's the, the next step is conscious incompetence, which is you know what you don't know. Um, and that can be a very painful place to be. Um, but you're also sort of, you know, feel a lot of anxiety and shame and frustration about not knowing those things. Mm. Um, I felt a lot of that this week. Sure. I think that's what that is like where as a on mass white liberals are there right now, conscious incompetence. And that's why there's so much, um, there's so much of a desire for like resource and um, guidance. Like, what do we do? What, what should we read that, you know, because we're, we are suddenly aware of what we don't know. Then the next step is conscious competence, where you are, you know, you're aware that you've, that you have some level of skill, but there's a way where it still is kind of effortful. And then unconscious competence is this kind of like effortless attunement. And I should say that this, this developmental framework is a little bit in tension with the idea that you know, there's no final destination and that allyship is a lifelong process. But I do think that this can help us think about like, where are our growth edges moving forward. But the reason I wanted to introduce this is because one of the main, uh, one of the kind of hallmarks of conscious incompetence is being very disparaging 
of other white people who know a little bit less than you do. Mm. It's like being super like sort of maybe this is the performative part of like showing off the little bit of things that you've learned and really trying to one up or put down other white people who are making a mistake that you probably made a month ago, but now you've learned and now you're going to, you know, regulate on them and be very critical and mean spirited. Mm. So Mm -hmm. I think that it's important to name that as a part of the developmental process. I for sure have been this super self-righteous white person at different times in my journey where I was, I sort of took pleasure and pride in making other white people feel bad and stupid. Mm. Um, And I think that's something that can come up when talking to our family members is that we are feeling so much shame and frustration about our own failures in these regards or our own, our own limitations that we, we find some little bit of comfort in criticizing or making ourselves feel better than other white people. And I think that that's actually a counterproductive tactic. Mm -hmm. So when talking to family members, um, I do think a lot of it is just about listening and asking questions, being curious, getting at some of the underlying beliefs, the sources of information, trying to build bridges rather than prove how smart you are or how woke you are. I think that's so great. It's such like a helpful (laughs) tip. I think what what I found is what when I was talking to this family member is that if I like just stopped trying to prove them wrong at every time that we disagreed, we were actually able to have like a really fruitful conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if I just didn't actively disagree, like I can disagree with you and not tell you that I'm disagreeing with you. Right. Right. One of my favorite things that I ever learned in through like recovery is um is saying you may be right when someone says something that you don't agree with. Hmm. And they generally hear you uh, that you are right. Like they think that you agree with them, but you mm-hmm. don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just, and some one of my family members after a while goes, wait, you, you keep saying that. And I go, yeah. And they go, you don't think I'm, I'm right, do you? And I go, no. And they go, <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> and then the next time they disagree with me, they go, well, you know, you may be right. Uh-huh. And uh, so it's just like there's some softness there, right? We don't have to disown everybody that we that is in our family because they don't read the same, get news from the same sources or don't believe the way, like what we believe, because there is a way to bridge. And this change can happen, I think, slowly over time. It really can. I absolutely. And I think it's important to remember sort of from a strategic organizing perspective that changing hearts and minds happens most effectively when there is a trusting, loving relationship Mm. in place. And so rather than alienating family members, what would it look like to hold them with a spirit of love and generosity And think about the long game of, you know, building 
um, knowledge together. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, it, it's not helpful to just like shut everybody out. Yeah. And, and distancing yourself from other white people is actually not useful to the movement. Mm-hmm. So somebody had bragged about all the followers they lost once they started posting about Black Lives Matter. And there was a reply to that saying, you know what? Those are the people that we need to be having, that you need to be having conversations with. All the other people that think like you and agree with you and agree with Black Lives Matter, like that's great, but it's the people that are on the fence or the people that disagree with you. Like you have an opportunity to yeah. talk to them because they look like you. Mm-hmm. They don't look like us. Uh, so the, there, yeah, there is an importance there of not alienating people and bringing them along with us. Mm-hmm. Um, I have another question for you. Wait, do you have something to say? Well, yeah, I wanted to say something too. Also, like, there's a limit to that too. I think you sure. know, like, there is. I think, I think, as with all aspects of this work, there's nuance and complexity and specificity to the situation and. There, I do think there are times and places when you just got to fucking cut someone out. Be sure. like, you're, you're toxic. You're harmful. I can't be in relationship with you because it's, I don't know. I'm not exactly sure how to put that, what the, what the hard line in the sand would be. I think it's different for every person, but I think it's worth saying that there are situations in which it does make sense to take space from a family member. Sure. Or, yeah. Take care of yourself. Right. Take care of yourself. And if someone is being like vam- like they're they're an energy vampire or it's it's like very expensive for you energetically to engage with them, like take of course take care of yourself. I mean, you're kind of useless to anything, to the movement, to yourself, to your loved ones, if you are like completely drained and overwhelmed and frazzled because you're trying to convince your crazy racist uncle that uh, that he should come to the next Black Lives Matter protest. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I thank you. It's all very nuanced. <laughs> and that's not a reason not to do this work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, here's a question from uh, a love bird. That's what I call people in my community. Cute. I know. They're sweet, but also lovebirds traditionally can be very vicious. So, Is a lovebird an actual bird? Yeah, they're like little parakeets that are like kind of coupled up. They're like they they like pair up and and they can be sweet or vicious. That's so appropriate. Yeah, they can be sweet or vicious. Yeah, so um, appropriate to hum- to the human race. Yeah, uh, and that's all I know about lovebirds. But yeah, they Great. are they are a type of bird. Anyways, this lovebird says um, that they have. I have always wanted to attend my local AME church, which is African Methodist uh, Episcopal Church in LA, but haven't done it yet. With everything going on right now, would it be considered performative and selfish to attend, or would it be welcomed as a show of support for the community? Zoe, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I think that there are some questions to ask yourself when considering that. Like, why do you want to go? What's underneath? What are the underlying desires to take that action? And do you have a relationship with people in the in that church community already? Or are you sort of just showing up as an outsider with no context? And then I think also try it. 
see what the vibe is like. If people are looking at you sideways and kind of like, what the fuck are you doing here? Then maybe you're like, oh, okay, that's not a good <laughs> move for me. Um, and, and, and what a, what a great opportunity to sit with the feelings of discomfort. Um, and I want to just say some, someone who has a little bit more context about that community, I don't know anything about church communities at all, um, might be able to give a better answer than me. Maybe reach out to somebody in that, the, who might be a bridge from that community to one that mm-hmm. you belong in some other yeah. church. Yeah. All right, I've got a big question for you, and then I, okay. I've got a few things I want to share. And then, um, so first of all, uh, what do you think, you Zoe, are a few key things that need to happen in this movement towards justice that need to happen from us when the momentum dies down? Mm. So, what what can we continue to do as like it becomes less trendy to do it? Right. Yeah. Joining an organization of uh white folks who are backing black led movements mm. um and staying involved in those organizations is really valuable um so the group that comes to mind off the top of my head is this group called showing up for racial justice and i should say i'm not a part of showing up for racial justice but i uh really appreciate their sustained engagement in this struggle, even when it's not trending. I I think also there's like a lot of workplaces and other communities that are starting to have like, um, uh, sort of white anti-racist, um, groups that meet. I know we have one at my school. Um, I think there's different companies and other institutions that have these kind of like white affinity spaces where white people can can continue working on unlearning racism and dismantling white supremacy with other white folks so that people of color don't have to kind of be holding space for white people to figure it out. Um, so those kind of white affinity spaces I think are really valuable. Um, so join those and stay in them mm. forever. I think also you mentioned earlier um, setting up recurring donations so that that's just a part of your budget moving forward forever in your life and other things that need to happen when things die down. I think those are two really good things. Yeah. Right. Like stay connected to an organization so that you can continue to have these conversations. And when I mean conversations, I mean like not just talking, but the conversations will spur action, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So stay, staying connected to these organizations and open your wallet mm-hmm. is something that I've been hearing over and over and over again. Like open your wallet, right? Especially if you're white, like you are benefiting from white supremacy and from racial inequality. You're born into this system and there's nothing wrong with opening your wallet. And supporting organizations that have been doing this work for a long time. Absolutely. I think let's remember to put a link to the um, Community Ready Corps page that has the five methods of divestment and weaponization of white power and privilege yep. in our resources. Because I just really appreciate the way they break down these sort of five pillars of the 
of the ongoing practice of um, dismantling white supremacy. They are education, organization, contribution, intervention, and divestment. And on that website, they've got a more explanation of what each of those are. Um, and I think that, yeah, sort of having, this is the nice thing about being a part of a group is there some collective accountability about um, continuing to grow into your practice. Um, and so this is a great framework, I think, for how to, um, how to pursue a lifelong anti-racist practice. We touched on a lot of these. I'm actually just going to read the headline for all of these. So, cool. Go um, for it. Education, build anti-racist consciousness among white people, right? So educate yourself and talk to other white people about what you've learned. Organization, build relationships inside the white community that are capable of collective action to support black liberation struggles. What you just talked about. Right, get involved with a community that's doing uh, white people that are helping. Contribution. Make strategic contributions to black-led campaigns, organizations, and movements. Self-explanatory. Open your wallet. Intervention. Take responsibility for preventing white people from harming black communities. That's actually something that we didn't talk about at all, but like speaking up when you see something or you hear th something fucked up or racist. Mm -hmm. Right. So instead of not saying anything, which is complicitly racist um actively speaking up and speaking up even when you don't know exactly what or how to say it perfectly mm. like just trying something hey even that sounds it, fucked up yeah and you know it's like you this this is really about learning by doing if you're if you wait until you know exactly the right thing to say you're never going to say anything so I talked to my to our mutual friend Patrick Ford about this, and he goes, "There are probably like three white people in the whole world that know how to talk about all of this perfectly, and and you will never be that person." Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so just like say something, you know, like yeah, just learn, but learn like you said, learn by doing. And number five is divestment, uh, redistribute slash return stolen wealth, land, and resources. Another form of opening your wallet, um, aka reparations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I'm doing, I, I sort of, I, I want to like get your 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 like idea or your your thought on this is that I'm about to launch a workshop and like, and I've realized also the ways in which I've been complicit in racism is that like most of the podcast guests that I've had are white. Mm -hmm. Most of the books that I read are from white authors. Mm -hmm. And most of the people, people that attend my workshops are also white. Mm -hmm. So what I'm committing to doing, at least in the work on the work side, is um, offering scholarships to black people to uh, who want to attend my workshops and want to pay like a discounted fee so that there's so that those tools are accessible to more than just white people. Mm -hmm. And also uh, donating 20% of the proceeds to an organization. And I've chosen the Loveland Foundation because I believe I keep on saying how important therapy is, but then also not really realizing that it's totally inaccessible to a lot of people, especially black people. Mm -hmm. um, so giving like quote unquote scholarships or financial aid and also committing to, you know, 
donating a portion of the proceeds to an organization that benefits black people. It's sort of my way of like moving forward, just in the short term. Yeah, I think that those are really beautiful action steps. I think that um, I would say to you and, and anyone who is working on kind of divestment or, or accessibility that, that it continue your own internal excavation of your own racism alongside these external actions that you're taking, that I think the internal work and the external work are like two feet on a bipedal person that you have to, you know, you have to be taking one step and then the other and not relying entirely on doing internal work with no external action and also not rely, not relying entirely on external work without doing the, the, the unlearning of your own white socialization. You, yeah. You can't just throw money at the problem. Correct. I mean, you yeah. can, and that's, you know, if that's all you got is a ton of money, then sure. Throw it at the problem. And <laughs> I guess I guess if you have a ton of money to throw at the problem, go ahead. But for most of us, we're gonna uh, we're gonna um, approach. We're gonna use a bipedal approach, and really, uh, core, which is the community ready core CRC, it's a five pronged approach. So yeah. there's five feet here, yeah, not just two, right? Which is weird. Are there any animals with five feet? You ever heard of that? <laughs> It's either a, it's a tail or you know mistaken as a tail or like a large member. All right. Anyways, do you have any anything else that you have on your notes or uh, in your? I mean, obviously you've got a lot of stuff, but anything that you want to leave us with? Yeah, I do. So we talked about a lot of the different things that I would consider key skills in building a lifelong anti-racist practice. Um, one of the things that we didn't talk about is staying connected to your own inherent human goodness. Mm. This is a concept that is really central to the work of a group called untraining. Um, and it's something that I have also found really essential. It can be really easy to sort of spiral into shame and despair when doing this work and what gives the work traction or the, you know, your ability to like move through shame and despair, I think is, um, is a fundamental self-love or self-respect. Mm. If you can't, this is going to sound so cliche, but here we go. I think if you can't love and respect yourself, you won't effectively be able to love and respect others. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I think naming that as an important part of this um, is valuable because, well, I don't really have a follow-up to because I think I already said why it's valuable. <clears throat> well, I love that you brought love into this conversation on the love drive podcast and the last question i usually ask people is what what does love mean to them and i think it's really easy to beat yourself up and so let's not do that 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, the, the, uh, the capacity for complexity and paradox is that like, look, white people have done horrible, fucked up, in inexcusable things for a long time. And also, we are human beings that have a, you know, an inherent desire for love and connection and, um, and want to want to do good also you know there's like these both things are true yeah it's it's hashtag it's complicated (laughs) gosh i feel like that that feels like a good a good place to end great zoe thank you so much i really appreciate your time yeah of course it's so nice to talk to you Thank you, Lovebird, for spending this time with Zoe and I learning about anti-racism and what it means to be an ally to the Black community. And actually, while I have you here, I will share with you my commitment moving forward. It's a list of 15 bullet points. Here goes. I will be unwavering in my belief and my commitment that Black lives matter. I will educate myself on systemic racism, racial injustice, and the effects of white supremacy and how to dismantle it. I will prioritize the safety, dignity, and humanity of people of color over my comfort as a white man. I will dialogue and learn with other white people and work on collective action to support Black liberation struggles. I will contribute on an ongoing basis to Black-led organizations, campaigns, and movements. I will speak up against the racist use of words, actions, and power and resources. I will include more Black, Indigenous, people of color voices in my podcast and pay those individuals for their time. I will make my work more accessible to Black, Indigenous, and people of color. I will use my privilege to help eradicate white supremacy in America. I will sit with the discomfort inherent in dealing with and talking about race and racism. I will have a group of white people check my work to make sure I am staying true to my commitments. I will remain teachable and dare to make mistakes. I will add to this list over time as I become more aware of how I can be most helpful. I will invite people to challenge me and keep me accountable for my deliverables. And I will fight for the freedom of Black, Indigenous, people of color until a fight is no longer necessary. This list is a starting point and isn't meant to be exhaustive or conclusive. Feel free to contact me if you'd like to discuss any of the above or anything else. Sean at thelovedrive.com. That's S-H-A-U-N at thelovedrive.com. Have a beautiful week.